So um, I I didn't really look at the questions. No, that's okay. But I mean, uh, we'll just we'll just wing it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You've been on uh, Tom's podcast as well, right? Tom Billu. Tom Billu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at his place two weeks ago, actually. And same yeah. with Lewis House. Nice. It's a similar format, not as intense as Tom because he gets like like right into it. Yeah, yeah. And but... he had like a he had like a live show. It was like it felt like it. a TV it was show. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he goes all out. For he sure. goes all out. Yeah, he, he's amazing. And yeah. uh, it's more like Lewis's, I think. It's more like conversational. Okay. Um, cool. Kind of that format, but we can wing it as we go. And if you ever want to like edit stuff out post production, we can always do that as well. Cool. So. Sounds There's good. no pressure. All right. Uh, also, we're going to challenge you to push up contests at the end as well. Okay, I just did like 70. I right know, I, and I heard I'm going to get him an ass kicked too, so this is going to be... No, 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 I'm not like that good. Plus, like my, my, I tore my rotator cuff on my left shoulder. Ooh. And I uh, just got the MRI last week, and I have to get surgery pretty soon. So... so I can still do push-ups. Yeah, I'm good. I just I I usually go floor to floor to full extension, yeah. but I can't really do that because it like it hurts my shoulder. I can go like sixty percent down. I can't go all the way to the floor. Okay, I was thinking we just like the first one to twenty or first one to twenty five. We can go we can go like, like as AMRAP. We can go as many as as we can. Yeah, I just can't go to the floor. Okay. I can't do the full like you know the deep push ups. Okay, okay. Or chest hits the floor and then you full extension out. So we'll both I guess do kind of a half one and just. Yeah, speed. yeah, yeah. I mean, I can only do like, like maybe sixty percent. Like, where the elbows are like maybe one ten. You feel it when you go like that? One ten till I like feel like the the like the tear hurting a little bit more. Okay. But, yeah. But what is this for? It's my my head. I'm sweating. What about me? You're good. Yeah, okay, definitely. You have to tell me when I'm, I'm the sweaty guy. So. I got yeah. some powder here too. Yeah, yeah. Let me know when I'm a. Uh, do you want to do you want to like quickly yeah, let me get a yeah, I wanted to quickly talk about you know first of all there's you are one of the few handful people that I think have gone through beyond their own community whether it's EDM or even the Asian community and you've been able to be received and loved by the global audience which is so rare I find in the Asian community definitely absolutely and particularly, you know, me being referred as Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee, right. only a handful, right, and, right, right, including yourself. So I wanted to start off by asking, why do you think there's only a handful of people compared to, let's say, some of the other races that are out there? That I mean, that's the age-old question. You know, I think everyone wants to know the answer to that. You know, especially, especially when you're in that group where you, you want to you want to connect with people outside of just your community. Like for me, when I grew up. Uh, Bruce Lee was was definitely my mentor, my hero. I talk about it all the time, yeah. um, uh, mainly because he was loved by the global community, mm. and and I I thought that was so cool that the Asian was loved. It wasn't like until later did I was I able to to analyze that. Um, because in, when I was a kid, I wasn't just like, oh, he's, he's loved by everyone. That's why I love him. I just more like I knew he was cool and everyone liked him. And I like that was the the real reason why I loved him, you know. Besides him being so cool, and and uh, I think now I'm 39. I'm still asking that question. Like, what is it? Why aren't there other Asians that that are globally uh, recognized and have that influence, like that can connect with so many people? Yeah. Because like that's my at my end goal here. Mm. Um, I use music as a tool to connect with people. So. Essentially, what I do and why I do it is to share and to connect. And music is my art form to, to be able to, my delivery system to be able to find that connection. Mm. And, I'm, and I'm constantly, uh, the energy is constantly renewed. Whenever I connect with someone, I feel that authentic connection. I feel like that energy is like um, powered up again. I'm like amplified again. So that's why I could be on the road for so, so much time. That's why I could be in the studio and work work diligently on finishing all this music so that the end result is to connect right so um and and i i'm lucky because i get to see i get to be part of that experience at the end. yeah there, right? a lot of producers don't have that you know like a lot of producers just stay in the studio i'm 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 lucky that i get to be able to to like start hitting the road and like going to all these different countries all these different cultures and and connecting and uh, yeah, it's it is like a, such an incredible feeling when you go to to these different countries, and a lot of them don't speak 
you know, English. English. And a lot of them are not Asian. Hmm. And there's, they're chanting your name. They're yeah. chanting either Aoki or Aoki. You know, there is, what, depending on yeah, where they're from. Yeah. But the fact is they're saying a Japanese name. They're saying an Asian identified name. And all of them are chanting that. So it's like there is that moment of self-reflection. I'm like, wow, there's people that are not Asian that are proudly chanting an Asian name. Mm. And especially here in America, that, that rings so strong too because, because the Asian uh, influential name, the Asian role model is not, no matter how, how hard we try, is not represented at the at the same level as some of these other you know some of these other uh, persons of color or other white people or other people that that you know have have that same kind of influence or whatnot. So it's whenever obviously whenever I hear or see another Asian that is that's treading a different route and doing something that's that's uh, breaking through, you know, it's it's like my obligation and also my responsibility as an Asian American to support them. Yeah. I think it's all of our responsibilities to really, to really, you know, build the community to help push other Asians up so that the whole tide of us can have, you know, much more influence in popular culture. Do you think that's what it was that there was a lack of people that have made it to a certain level that weren't really there to support or is it more the traditional education or the culture that we were taught not to speak out, not to express our own voice, and to be able to chart a different path than what most people are used to. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when I was in, uh, I took an Asian American class in uh, in uh, UCSB, um, or actually, I don't think I took one Asian American class. Huh. Um, when I really think about it, I, I was part of a group called Asian uh, Student Group. Okay. Can we stop? Okay. This is oh. going to happen a lot, by the way. Yeah. It's like so loud. Is it bad though? Or is it like, let's just say yeah. this is how it's Yeah, I don't mind stopping it. This, this is the problem with downtown. Downtown is like, because yeah. it's also, we're next to Skid Row, which is lots of activity and lots of like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it? Maybe place your phone just a couple of feet away. Sure, I'll just get rid of my phone. All right, cool. All good. I will If it's too bad, I'll just raise my hand. You can choose to stop or not. Sure, yeah. Where do you want us to start off? I'll start off where you got this question, right? So I know exactly where to start. So when I went to UCSB, I had some influential Asian-American professors, and I was in a group called Asian. And... And this woman, Diane Fugino, she wrote this book um, about an, a- an Asian-American activist. And, and he tells a story. I'm not sure if she wrote the book, but she was part of the book or, or definitely supporting this book. And he tells a story of, of uh, being in the internment camps and how the Asian people in the internment camps, they, they were um, – there was something about like the whole culture of Asian people in the term of camps that they did not resist. They were obedient. There was no like protesting. There was no, it was like, like if they're led this way, they're led this way. If they're led to death, they're led to death. Mm. And they didn't fight that. They were very obedient. And, uh, and then I didn't read this book, so I, I don't want to bastardize the book. Um, but he does talk about from what I got from the, from like listening to her speak about the book is that culturally we're like the Asian community. I don't, I don't want to homogenize all of Asia as one community, but there's sectors of the Asian community that, that uh, are, are taught to be obedient, that taught not to, to like, you know, like stand out and, and make a voice that we're, you know that we 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 we're gonna go where we're supposed to go, and uh, when you think about that, then you think about the you know the outliers. It's hard to, to find an outlier in that. You know, of course, there's gonna be people that aren't gonna follow the rules. I mean, that's just human nature. But the culture itself, you know, it, it doesn't allow for one person to stand out possibly. So that's that's one theory. You know, that's one theory that like it's harder to find the outliers when when. Uh, the culture itself is all about like, you know, that same, that same kind of like non-resistance 
himself, you know? Yeah, I mean, for, especially for Japan and Korea, we lived, I mean, we're both kind of like Asian-American, but there is a collectivism culture there where you want everybody to unite, and if somebody's off the path, or especially like when it gets to entrepreneurship, when you're in Japan or even in Korea and you fail, you are, you're not embraced, right? Versus the Silicon Valley culture where it's, or even just the American culture where it's very independent individualism. So I, I think you do make a good point about that. Well, like if you like if you go back to a civil rights struggle too, and yeah. the history of, of American civil rights, there was a large presence of the Afri- African American population that really protested and made serious change for their people. Yeah. Same with uh, women's with the women's rights movement, and uh, and and the the, the kind of progress that, that that achieved as well when you hear about the asian american protest movement and that that voice it's very it's like marginalized yeah it's like or or it's either marginalized or it wasn't really that present you know it wasn't maybe that it wasn't even around really as much and i think that like goes to show the kind of culture like each culture how it's represented it's it's different yeah. and uh i mean there were i remember there's asian people when I was in college, I was really supportive of these Asian people, namely this dude named Richard Aoki. He was not my, he was not actually related to me, but he was We're last so name is Aoki. Yeah, but so you know. I didn't, I didn't meet him, but he was, he, uh, Richard Aoki and Yuri Kochiyama. Yuri Kochiyama was a Japanese American that, uh, that, that was fighting alongside and supportive of the Black Panther Party. And as well as, uh, I think namely more, more namely Malcolm X. Wow. And when Malcolm X was, was shot and murdered in the Audubon ballroom, she was there holding his head. So she was next to Malcolm. There, yeah. She was supportive of, uh, you know, the African-American struggle and the civil rights struggle through the African-American voice. And I think for the Asian-American people that stood out and actually made a voice in the civil rights movement, they, they found more empowerment, I think, with, with, uh, with different ethnicities movements yeah you know and richard alki is also um known for supporting the black panther movement and he was like one of the few asians that like that were at the rallies and there's pictures of him like you know like oh, like you know the, the, the black panther uh rallying through the streets you know uh you know fighting for for their rights and and for their struggle and and then there's richard alki with another guy and actually they formed a group called the yellow peril <laughs> and that was it was like two Asian guys, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, it's two Asian guys, and they were like, we're we, we're down to uh, you know to represent for the Asian community um, to you know to embrace this change and this progress um, for for equal rights. Mm. And uh, and and like and I, I remember seeing that. So when I was in a band, I was in a band back then. Um, I, I'm digressing a bit, but I was in a band when I was in college. And it was called, we called it This Machine Kills from Woody Guthrie's This Machine Kills Fascist, mm-hmm. which he had on his guitar. And, uh, and then I called myself the Yellow Peril because, you know, kind of like paying tribute to uh, Richard Oakey. I actually got to meet him in, in Oakland uh, before he passed away. And I actually got to meet Yuri Kochiyama as well at a, at a Free Mumia Bujamal rally in, up in the Bay Area as Did well. You so, part of that rally? Yeah, yeah. I, I was a, a, a big... Uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't say big, but I was definitely an activist mm. in, when I was in college, and, and I was um, I would travel around and, and uh, be part of the movement. But um, yeah, it was um, it's it's just interesting when you go into that world, and you could even say that world has a lot of relationship and and uh, understanding outside into the entrepreneurial world. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of relationship there because it's we're all human. You know, whether we're um, creating business to, you know, once again, connect with people and, and share our technology, share the, the way in which we live our lives, which is essentially what, what, what I feel business for, and, uh, and to fight for change. When, you know, we're essentially doing the same thing in different realms, in different degrees and manners. But um, so it's like, what is it? Yeah, the question, we go back down to the question, like, why aren't there more Asians that that have that that can surface globally and have that influence? Yeah, and I feel like it's a question that's rarely addressed and put in the spotlight. So I even yeah. talked to my mom just before this as well, and I was like, name three people that are as globally recognized that you can go to South America, Europe, Africa, and just be able to recognize that person. Yeah, and 
we were both sitting down and we're like, we had a tough time. But I think it's, you know, credit to you being able to put the spotlight and being able to advocate for a lot of the few minority, you know, Asian Americans or just Asian people that are actually making this kind of movement. So that's amazing. Um, And going back to your childhood, I know, and this is something that I really related to, which is being bullied and being discriminated against for being an ethnic minority, not just an Asian American, but, you know, this is something that everyone can go through as well. And one thing that really stuck with me is the, I think it was in your documentary, one of the interviews where your mom had to apologize for something that you were a victim of. And when you asked her why you're apologizing, it's because she felt that she didn't want to feel isolated within the community. And obviously, you've made a name for yourself out there, but there's a kid right now that is in high school, in elementary, or even in college that's being discriminated against, or even in a young adult that feels like they have this limit, limited capacity because of the ethnicity that he was in. It doesn't matter whether it's Asian American or another ethnicity. What's your advice to them? Because you're one of the few people that have managed to break through and develop a love within the global setting. Yeah, you know, like going back to what my mom, like, so I, when I was, uh, I remember I got in a fight with this kid. It's my first fight. He's actually my, my really good friend no. at the time. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he was, it was like a torrent of name calling, mainly racial slurs when I went over to his house. And, uh, and, I, and I was, I was, com- I was completely confused cause he's my friend. I would always go over to his house and we'd like hang out. And, um, and uh, I remember he was with this other kid that I didn't, I knew I didn't, I didn't know very well, but I knew it was just a, a bad apple, <laughs> you know, just, he was always like, it's like a, a negative dude. Like that just was always like a kind of a hater. And, uh, and his name is Clint, this guy. And, uh, and, uh, and I later found out like his, his um, older brother was a, a Nazi skinhead and he just didn't like anyone that wasn't white. And so he definitely fed my friend a lot of baloney just to like not be my friend and yeah. say all this stuff and throw shit rocks at me and all kinds of stuff. But um, all that aside, you know, when I went and I confronted him and then we eventually got in a fight and I, I actually beat him up. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I, really, I really, I really didn't understand what I was doing. But like, it's not like I this tough kid that can fight back. And yeah. it wasn't really that. It was more like it was just a bunch of rage, and I was just angry. And I just, yeah, it wasn't really self defense either. I just was pushed into him, and I started punching, like, okay. like blindly punching. Like, yeah, and I yeah. somehow the kid hit the floor, and I just kept going. And then that was it. I won. But whatever. Um, that's not the point. The point is, is that we get getting to what my mom going back to apologize to the situation and going, you know what, it doesn't matter what the situation was because, um, and she, of course, she didn't explain it to me like this. Yeah. I was really confused and, and angry at her for apologizing and saying, you need, you need to be the, you know, not the bigger man here, but she was just like, we can't cause trouble because we're the only Asians in this little area and we will, they'll, they'll like come after us kind of, thing. not come after us, but like, like we'll be shunned. We, we, yeah. we won't be like part of the group. And, uh, of course I was confused and pissed off and like going, I can't believe you're like not standing up for me. And for many years I felt that way, but that's the culture that, that I think a lot of Asians feel like there's no unity mm. to, to feel comfortable, to be able to stand up and speak out. Mm. Right. So we always get back in line. It doesn't matter if it's our fault we have to get back in line or else something bad will happen to us in the end. And we, we can't defend and stand up for ourselves because no one else is going to help us. Mm. There's no community around us that can actually like be like, okay, we're, we're like hand in hand. We're going to, we're going to fight, you know, the racism or whatever it might be. Because it's like when you're Asian, it's not like you can fall into the African-American community or the Latino community or, or the native American community, you are your own, just like, you know, the African Americans are, can't con- connect with uh, other communities. It's like, we have our own community, but where is our community to support us? Yeah. Where is that support system to support us? And if there is a community, I feel like it's the Korean community and the Japanese community. It's not the Asian community that yeah. collectivism is right. together. And even the Japanese community, there was no Japanese community at that time that would be willing to fight. And there, it's more like, get back in line really and I, I hate to say that I hate to say that about my own community that I felt that way but I did that's the truth yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I still can't think of a Japanese American community that just like fights for Japanese Americans and if they are, are 
those communities out there, they're so on the fringe. Mm. They're not part of the culture. They're on this like this outside fringe that if you even connect with that community, you're you're this radical leftist or you're like something that's not normal. Mm. You're abnormally part of that community. You know, it's not it's not like well, it's normal to have a community to support Japanese American people's um, issues or, or um, you know, dealings with you know, you know, the world. Mm. And in Newport Beach, I, I remember I got the statistic that the Newport Beach, the area I was living, is ninety six percent white. So to give you an idea of the landscape of of racial tolerance or understanding or education and awareness it's very yeah it's, it's so minimal that that uh the teachers and the parents and the and everyone else that other white people can look towards to to know what's bad to say that's negative to say um they don't get that they don't get that awareness so they get it's almost like it's reinforced it's okay to be racist in these ways because it's not it's not discussed openly it's not discussed like hey you can't say that it's not it's not okay to say that amongst your friends because your friends are actually saying no one's saying anything bad about it so i can say this to my friend i can say this to this asian guy i can say this to this african-american guy or girl I can say whatever I want because no one is reinforcing or everyone's reinforcing the, the, the idea of this ignorance, yeah. you know, so, they're um, being taught now that they're, it's okay, which is totally not. Yeah. And it's not even that they're taught that they're like, they're just, it's not, it's not a bad thing to do. It's not like, it's, it's just not, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Say it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, so un- until like it gets on the internet or something, and all of a sudden like the the world's like mocking this kind of thing. That now it's happening thing more and more. Yeah. Um, so racism becomes more and more subliminal uh, and hidden. But um, you know, uh, I'm sure like even now in 2017 in Newport Beach, in 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 Dover Shores, in the areas I was in, there is still like you know straightforward outward racism that's like you're like you're confused that people are okay that's okay to say that um in in california you know maybe like you'd say like in small towns and in the midwest or small towns here and there um like people say these things all the time but in california a very progressive state newport beach is actually quite conservative and and have this um you know, this non-communication about, uh, you know, all the different cultures and communities of people that live yeah. out here that, that make up America. Yeah. What's a step forward that we can take to at least be able to progress this movement? I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like conversations like this happening because like whoever is going to watch this um, that is interested in the conversation uh, won't, won't feel alone. And, you know, have that conversation with other people. I mean, it's constant conversation. It's like constant awareness, yeah. constant life experience, discussing these things and not, not hiding and, and bottling it up, but like talking about it. Uh, uh, not as a negative thing. This isn't yeah. a negative thing that we're talking about. This is just life experience that, that, that needs to be shared um, and part of growth, really. You know, it's like no one, you know, whether you're black, white, red, yellow, purple, whatever you are, everyone has different life experiences, and we all need to, ex- to talk about it. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and it makes us who we are. You know, and hopefully we learn from it in a positive way, and we do something about it, and we and we um, continue the conversation. So you had this voice that you wanted to express, and when you were talking about you referred to this before when you were in a band punk and rock this is really when you were able to express your voice and you were able to find that inner confidence and you were able to be yourself and this is something that's shown in the documentary so we don't have to go over too yeah, right. it. but what is um, and, and then after after that experience and after that phase you went through into DJing and this is something that I haven't heard too much is why did you decide to choose to be a DJ when especially back in those days wasn't as popular as it is now where everybody wants yeah. to listen to electronic music. So how did that shift happen? Talk to us a little bit about the transition. Why does that become yeah. this the, the, There was no intentional shift. It wasn't 
it wasn't like uh, I'm going to be a DJ. Mm. You know, it's it was more um, once again like a tool. Like so, I I finished college. Um, I lived in Santa Barbara for a little bit longer, and then I moved to Los Angeles with my girlfriend at the time. And, uh, and when I did the move to LA, my intention there was to really turn Dimock into a business. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had some releases on my label at the time that had um, enough weight for us to actually, you know, go. Okay, we can really like turn this into a real business, and I, I, I need, but I need to put full time into the business so i moved to la with that intention and uh and you know we lived in a small apartment in hollywood and um you know i, I had to make a name for myself there and make not, not necessarily for myself but for the for the label the brand. branding really yeah so um th- you know all my friends in la were either bartenders or like promoting for little nights and things like that. And the next move was is to, is to like join in, in on that and start branding Dimock, mm. you know, and, and start throwing these parties where I can join in with the, the people that are already doing it and open up the night. So how do I open the, up the night? I just start DJing. Mm. So my friend was like, Hey, you want to start DJing at my bar? Um, he saw my record collection out of a sick record collection of mainly like punk and hardcore music. And he, and he knows he's a punk kid too. He's not a punk kid. He's a punk adult. And, um, and he's like, yeah, just come in. I'll show you how to do it. It's really easy. You know, it wasn't about mixing. It's just about playing music. I'm like, I can play records like this, like a radio show, you know, at at a bar. And that's how I started. It was like, I was like, wow, I can, I love the idea of just playing my music. So I'd sit in a chair and I would make, drink some tea, and I was just playing records, just like this. You had no just, idea what you were doing when you were starting, right? Yeah, but I mean, there's no dance floor or anything. It was just like people sitting in a, in, at a bar, mm-hmm. literally, literally a bar, while I'm playing like hardcore punk music. And I was like, this is dope. I mean, I didn't even pay anything. Of yeah, course, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting to get paid. I was just like, when can I get the next show? I want to do this every night. This is a lot of fun. And um, and then I met up with this other kid, and um, he was throwing parties at this small bar, and then and, and I just joined him. And I was the opener. And um, and I would just DJ, like you know, as the opening set. And I would get, you know, start building out my hip hop collection. And I just loved DJing. Mm. And in the beginning, I was more of a selector. I was just playing records because it was so back early back then. It wasn't digital, so I'd just play like a you know, Big record into you know Block Party, you know, like an artist that we signed. And then and then what I realized is that we have a lot of these indie acts that are coming through LA and they're they're performing at their own shows. But hey, they could be DJing at our bar mm. at our night. So when Block Party comes through, we can do the after party where they come and DJ and it's not necessarily about their DJ skills because none of them were DJs. It was more about having a Block Party after party with Kelly from Block Party DJing records of his favorite you know his playlist really and um and then we we grew this really small scene and these small bars the size of this room and uh like 60 hipster kids would come through and then all of a sudden it was the talk of the town and all the lifestyle magazines were talking about it we started throwing different parties with different lifestyle magazines like herb and bpm and um and we became the we became like the the voice of the the indie indie electro Hollywood scene. Yeah. So all the bands would come through. They're like, "Oh, we gotta go play at Aoki's party, at the Dimac party." You know, it was like, "Let's go play those parties." And and so after our shows, we can go DJ, have some fun. You know, and give them a hundred bucks and a bar tab. Yeah. You know, yeah. And um, back then, I wasn't really making money. And then I, soon they were like, "Hey, here's like an extra hundred bucks for yourself." Or here's 75 bucks for yourself. I'm like, sweet. Damn. Now I can make some money um, paying off my rent and paying off the Dimock bills. And, and basically, that's how it all started. Yeah, and it took a while for you guys to really, I mean, it was a freaking grind when you guys first started, right? Yeah. And obviously, that was a very smart move on your part to be able to build this community. I'm curious to know, what is another like investment or a risk that you took within the business that when you look back now, you're like, damn, that was a good move. That's what really paved us forward uh you're talking about dimock or or just in general dimock um what was a risky move it could be general yeah. as well. i'm trying to think of like a, a risky uh, move for dimock um well 
the big first risk was, you know, because I come from the punk and hardcore community where you don't align yourself with the corporations, you know, you don't align yourself with major labels or anything like that. And I started shedding that concept and idea you know that was more of it seemed like to, to be it just fit the lifestyle of 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 you know the aesthetic of what punk and hardcore is yeah. but it really didn't make any sense in the end because i am essentially trying to get my music out to as many people as possible yeah. um to as many people as possible of the people that care about the music not just like random people that are like oh what's this noise i'll, I'll listen to it more like uh, i'm trying to build the core of what demak is the demographic so um eventually i shed that well i mean at the time it's, it's depending on what the genre of music that we're promoting so at the time it was um you know we were really one of the the most important small labels that were developing all the british indiacs from Block Party to Claxons to, you know, even the gossip who are from Portland, but like started blowing up in, in, in the UK, um, you know, Mystery Jets, a bunch of indie, like we were signing a lot of British acts and a lot of indie acts in general. And then we went into Electro finally, like at a later stage, wow. you know, because like we, I was already DJing a lot of the Electro, you know, a lot of the, the non-band DJs uh, like that were that were, that were um, putting out electro music, but I didn't put any of that music out because we were doing so well within our indie world. You know, we were like crushing it for to you know put out all this new music and break these acts in America, and uh, and then I signed Mastercraft, but I signed them. The only way I could sign them, this is their second album, so there's already a lot of heat on them. The only way I could sign them is is if I signed with a major. Mm. So I did a, a big label deal with um the first major and which was really not a major it was like a large indie and they're called downtown records and they're based out of new york and they fused infused the capital into the company and then we would sign acts and do 50 50 joint ventures on the acts and um yeah i'd say that was the first big big jump as a business from going from being totally independent and then and then signing with with uh you know, a very large entity mm-hmm. that would soon have control of the pocketbooks and the decisions on where, you know, where we're going to go with the business. But I didn't have that kind of money. You know, yeah. I was basically just running off fumes as, as far as, you know, paying for publicists and paying for radio campaigns and paying for whatever I was paying for. I was, uh, I was like, this is very difficult to do it entirely on your own. And we had a very small staff of people. So, and we had a small staff of people that were passionate and loyal, but they didn't have that work experience because the people, the work experience costs a lot more money for us to handle. So it was more like you're down with Denmark, you're down for the sweat and the blood to like really push this culture. And those are the people that I ended up signing or ended up hiring. Really. And, um, but they didn't have the work experience. So we had to like, like fail forward together. Proper startup. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent startup. I think everybody can relate to this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a relatable progress, but it's different. That like, I mean, we had no, we had no investors. We had no investments. I, it was entirely from my DJ career, and I was making like what hundred bucks a show, or not a show, a DJ set at a, at a bar. Yeah. So like, you know, the kind of money that, that I was giving the employees was, was nowhere near what you would consider a startup. Um, it was definitely like building the, the community slowly but surely of people that cared. And, uh, you know, it's not if I go back in time, I would have done it differently. But I don't know if I would have the resources to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Because when you have when you're at that base and that, that, that small, you're not going to get investors. I didn't know how to build a deck. I didn't know how to build a, uh, you know, a, a package to, to really get investors. I didn't know that world. Right. Yeah. So my first step was just like doing what we do well and having people being interested and be like, Hey, we want to help you out, but we're going to, we're going to own 50% of the, of the artists that we sign. Right. Like, well, I think that's fair enough. I think it's fair enough. Um, in the end, it was not a great deal. In the end, um, it was like, it felt like the situation of, of being, countries in africa that are that get the loan from the world bank 
and are, are forever in debt. And no matter what happens and the interest rate goes up, they will always be in debt. And that's what it felt like in the end because the debt became so large and I had to pay so much money out that I was forever in debt and I couldn't get out. And I'm like, I am going to, I am like, I, I can, I can't even claw my way out of this deal. And I'm, and I'm forever in their, um, you know, in their decision-making. So when, when the, we weren't hitting the bottom line, when they shut the lights off, I can't turn them back on. So the only way I could do it is if I actually close the company up or I'd have to like close the company up and then I'd have to find a way to like pay them back yeah. or like, you know, work out a settlement and I didn't have no money. So personally, I had no money. So what'd you do? Well, we just fought and fought and we figured out like a solution. It took years to find the solution. And, um, I, I don't remember the details, but I got lucky and I got out. I got out of the deal without having to like uh, fork over a lot of money I didn't have. So I got lucky. Got yeah. very, very lucky. So luck was on my side. I don't know if what I, I have to like go back and really like a master understand. negotiator or something. Yeah, it wasn't me. It was my lawyer, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, even that deal was pretty awful, you know. So um, it was one of those like too good to be true situations and that's one lesson i've learned is that like when when a deal is too good to be true it 99 is too good to be true actually 100 i i actually have very i'm very skeptical of yeah. any deal that's that's like shining and glimmering and pretty and mm-hmm. and like you know there is there is going to be some issue so it's front-loaded deals like that are are almost entirely bullshit yeah and you have to be yeah you have to like just trust your own gut and know not to take that money and and uh and know not to take that you know you have to like i don't know where i'd be without the downtown deal i mean i wouldn't be able to sign my mastercraft at the time but but i wouldn't be in hell for those those two or three years i was stuck in this deal yeah you know yeah because uh you know if you don't perform entirely the way they expect in the beginning it's not going to look good for you in the end. So, and the, 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 the reality of things performing the way you expect them to perform is actually not always the case. Actually, generally not the case. So I feel like it's a 20% chance that things will perform the way you expect them to perform. Mm-hmm. Your, your idealism is m- much larger and much more real than, you know, I mean, you know, much larger and not not as real than what's really going to happen. Yeah. And I think you have to always look at the worst case scenario up, you know, and, but then, you know, uh, it's like, just like anything, when you go into a deal and you're selling something, you're, you're talking about the, the best case scenario. Yeah. So when you're on the, the, the other end of the spectrum, you got to remember that, you know, you got to remember that. And like almost every uh, investment I've done in the last like six years since I've been growing my entrepreneurial portfolio outside of the music industry. Yeah. Every glimmering, beautiful deal is like never really so shined out. Yeah. So I'm very skeptical. Um, uh, you know, you have to wait on it. And if it's one of those things where you have to sign the bottom line right away, don't sign it. Mm-hmm. And that's my general take on it. There's more situations that can come in your way. Um, and the other thing too is like, you know, I always say follow your passion, but remember passion are based on feelings that are not necessarily based on truth or facts. Yeah. It's all emotional. Yeah. And, and following your emotions into business, um, relationships is not necessarily the right way to do it. Yeah. Follow your passion in creativity. But following your passion in in uh, forking over your money is not necessarily the right way to think either. You need pragmatic, like you need to learn how to be pragmatic. You need to, you need to build that side of the brain. Yeah. The the side that you don't really care about, the side that's boring, the side that's like stops you from doing deals or stops you. You need to build that side out, and you need to make that side really sharp. Yeah, or at least have a partner that can at least. Really yeah, or you need to do it on your own, right? Because the partner, necessary. yeah, because the partner itself, like you don't know what their life experiences are. I mean, the thing is, is for me, I, I guess in the end of the day, I need these life experiences of of like seeing the glimmer and seeing that's not true a few times to realize yeah. of like, okay, 
like it's not going to be the case every time. And, you know, my skin just got harder, you know. So I needed that. I needed those fails. Mm. But make sure that if you do those, because you're going to have to do those. When you're a young entrepreneur, you're going to be like, deals, deals are going to come your way. Yeah. Especially if you're publicly known to make money. If you're publicly known to be an influencer, an influencer and making money, deals are going to be thrown at you that look so good. Yeah. And you have, to, you have to just be patient. And you're going to do a couple of those deals. You are going to do a couple of those deals. Because you're not going to say no to everything. You're like, i got to say yes to some of these things. But realize that they will not... Like there might not be fruitful deals. There'll there'll be deals that are good for your your awareness and your wisdom in doing business in the future. That's the best way to put it. And know that you will not make that money back. Mm. Say it to yourself, not to them. To setting your own expectations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Managing your expectations and knowing that whatever deal you put yourself in in the beginning, in the beginning, um, don't put too much. Just put just enough where you can feel it and you can feel the burn so you learn so you're in a different place now where as you mentioned opportunities are just thrown at you every single day people especially want your time and people want to build relationships with you yeah and one of your favorite quotes is do yourself any means necessary but i'm curious to know now when you've got employees you've got a team that's working with you you're traveling all the time it's hard to do everything yourself unless it's the really important aspects of the business yeah. or your career, how do you differentiate what to delegate and what to hand off to someone versus what you should do it yourself at this point in your career? Okay, with, with Dimmock, you know, since we we're talking about Dimmock, I did everything myself in the beginning because I had no choice. Yeah. So um, in all aspects of the business, so production and manufacturing to distribution and sales to promotion and publicity and marketing, um, you know, to literally like selling records out of my backpack, to selling records from my the, the, the back of my car, those yeah. kinds of things. To so picking up the records at the vinyl distributors, uh, the, the, I mean the vinyl manufacturers, to delivering them directly to distributors and making the relationships and having the contacts with everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, you, like I did it all. Okay, so I already know the process, and then you you do the process over and over again, and you you build the relationships, just like with any business. And, uh, and then slowly, you, you know, you're gonna have to hand that over when the business grows to that point. So um, for me, like you know, long story short, with Dimock, I w- I already knew how to run that that side of the business, train people to do that side of the business, and um, now I'm in a position where Dimock is sort of <laughs> now I'm in a position with Dimock is okay. We've done this for twenty. 20 years now we're at 21 yeah. years of being a business right, by the way. that i don't really need to do the day-to-day anymore i don't i don't i don't feel like effectively that's where i need that's that's like the best place for my time so um what is the best the, place the best the the most important thing for this business is hiring the right people mm. i mean i'm sure you hear that from every entrepreneur or every ceo because once you hire that person they're with you and they will they will they of course are gonna fuck up they're gonna like you know, do things that aren't, that you have to trust their decisions, you know, to do. And, and, uh, but you have to make sure you hire the right, well-rounded people to be running your company and allow them to, to, you know, really own that piece of the company that like it's their business, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, with Lee Carisu, the president of Denmark, when I found him and it took time, oh my God, it took years and years and years and years to find the right operator. Years, years. I mean, I like other people managing the business, but to me, I hate to say it, but they're like more placeholders for like, you know, someone that can really understand uh, the bigger business to expand the business and run the operations, do both. You you need someone that can think outwardly and and in the future um, as well as as like making sure the operations are maintained. Um, It's so, so hard to find that person. How did you know that it was him specifically? Um, Well, yeah, of course, I I didn't know it was him specifically, but I knew he – I had a relationship with him because he – actually released my first single on a different label huh. and uh on thrive thrive released my my first single i'm in the house with, okay. with super black in 2008 so i knew he already had like the the he just he had the breadth of knowledge of running a company um i always want to work with him but and he had like a you know i mean people pulling on him in different ways so you got to think of your your like okay here's my pool of people so you're looking at all the people that 
in your network, right? So I'm looking at ARs of major labels. I'm like, no, they're so hands off. I need someone dirty in the nitty gritty, like dealing with things. A lot of ANR people, they're just like, they're good at, at delegating, right? But they're not like hands in. So I need someone that's actually worked at any label because it's a completely different model, different dynamic to work at an indie label where you actually have to do everything. Right. They're working at a major label where you have a full infrastructure to deal with. So I decided to like cut away that pool, the major label pool, because we are an indie label. Yeah. And we don't have the bandwidth or the, the, the money to like have an enormous team. We need people that are willing to take on multiple roles and understand all of them. And uh, indie, the indie label per- perspective was definitely the one I, I needed. So luckily, I Lee gave it a chance. We did a honeymoon period. And now he has, you know, he's got a vested interest in the company. He's got equity in the company. And I want him to have that. I want him to feel like it's his company. It is his company as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, technically. So, um, and he, he worked night and day blood sweat and tears of the company and i rely on him a lot on the operations and almost entirely yeah and i'm i'm a part of i'm 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 ahead of the a and r team if you will it's still my company entirely yeah, yeah. um it is dimock is in my blood is it's my firstborn child you know i don't have a kid yet so it's yes. my firstborn um and uh and you know i'm, I'm of course the majority um shareholder if you want to call it of the company um and uh and i have a pretty solid team it's just took a long long time long time to build that and so beyond dimac now you are not just fighting for opportunities for dimac but your own time this is really where when you stepped out of dimac your time is really the most valuable and especially who you hang out with yeah the people the five people the 10 people that you really are in your inner circle can really drain you it can make you it can break you and at this point in your life where you're so globally recognized and people are trying to fight for your time and your attention and your relationship, what are the criteria that you use to filter out the people that you may not know so that they can, you know, that you can give your time, your valuable time yeah. to, to those people? Okay, so before we get to that, you know, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface as far as um, business, the Aoki business model. And I'm, I mean, I, I don't want to get too digress too much into that, but no, like what, once Dimock was established and I was able to leave it, then yes, the bandwidth of time that I had to to give to Aoki business, Aoki business, however you would say, it. <laughs> in America to the, to the to white man is Aoki, you know? Yeah, uh, Aoki. Yeah, I, I like. I'm man. like, this is my world, so I always say Aoki. I'm 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 guilty of of saying it, but um. Uh, yeah, my 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 bandwidth opened up, and I, you know, like and and like I said, like when I first started getting into to the idea of being an entrepreneur, you know, if you will, then um, yeah, I was doing a bunch of different deals in a bunch of different fields, and and then it was more like testing the waters of how much time I could put into into what and what is going to you know uh, give me back. Uh, the most mm. you know whether it's not necessarily about money it's more about like you know because when you give something time you want to get uh, you want to get this appreciation back whether it's not just money but it's uh, this factor of like you feel good at the end of the day it's like oh, it makes you feel good yeah. right like I feel good about this regardless of getting money back whether it's starting a charitable organization where of course it's not about getting money back it's more about like you know sharing awareness on the, the issues at hand that we're that raising money towards or the organizations and research institutes that are doing outstanding work as far as you know you know brain research or the things that we we, we really focused on mm-hmm. in the last few years um so it's about that you know and like and figuring out like you know my pie my my pie chart of my time and how much i can give to what and in order to maintain that we're going to get to your question of who I really spend my time with. And uh, I, I think we all get there as we get older that you spend less time with your friends that you grew up with and friends you went to college with, friends you met at bars or clubs or whatever it might be, and you're spending more time with the people you work with. You know, like I spend almost entirely most of my time with people I work with and like let's say my partner, you know. So like that's – that's really where I spend the majority of my time with. And then when I see people that, that are from my past that I, that I really cherish my time with them, 
the friends that I made, whether it's other artists or whether like friends from the past, I see them, you know, like through my life, you know, but they're not like, uh, you know, the people I consistently talk to and confide with and businesses just become such a large part of my life it is it is my life you know it's the studio brand yes it's like everything i do what sleep wake up whatever i do it's i'm constantly thinking about that it's not business it's like business is life you know in in the way that uh it's no longer like i i'm 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 like this is my work hour and then when i'm done with work i'm like free here no no business is 24 hours you know for me and i want that always on I'm always on. Actually, I don't know if that's a good thing. Actually, it's probably not. But it's just it what motivates me. It's what inspires me. And business is not necessarily just about uh, number crunching or how much money I'm making or, or, or this, that, and the other. It's more like the, the, the process of creation, the process of uh, collaboration, the process of, and at the end of the day, connection and sharing. Whatever it is, whether it's product, whether it's fashion, whether it's uh, music, um, and at, and and at the end of the day, it's like whether it's product, fashion, music, uh, lifestyle, culture, all those things. At the very end, is we, what we what we've been talking to the very 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 beginning is the concept of sharing and connectivity with those things. And I want to make sure that whatever I'm part of has something that leaves someone happy. That leaves someone with a meaningful experience, whether it's a live show, whether it's a song, uh, whether it's a T-shirt, whether it's socks, you know, happy socks, these happy yeah, socks rubbers, yeah, you, know? yeah. you know, and um, and I want it to feel like I want people to to appreciate it and have that experience. It's like a an Aoki experience, mm. the cake in the face, an Aoki experience, the um, you know, the song. The Pursuit, Pursuit of Happiness remix that everyone knows about Aoki feeling when you hear that song to, you know, a new album, Colony. It's an Aoki experience, you know. Um, and, you know, it's like so many ways to find that experience. So that's one of your metrics. It's like the feeling and the emotion that you deliver to someone as like the end product. That's 100%. That's the entire metrics. Love it. And you mentioned that work is so much a big part of your life now. It's basically 24-7, as you mentioned. Do you ever get lonely? Um, it's a. Uh, sorry, can I ask? Maybe it's just a question. What time on the Saturday? It's a good question. We had uh, Robert Green on on the podcast. I you read Mastery. Oh yeah, yeah, no. That he he got a really interesting answer about that as well. What did he say? Um, I can't remember. Uh, I think he talked about you just gotta embrace it. He, he's a writer. Yeah. Um, but Sounds a little... yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point in your career now, as you mentioned, you are on twenty four seven, and business is a big part of your life. And you also mentioned that personal friends or, or the acquaintances that you had, you may not get to see so often. So how do you deal with loneliness? Uh, loneliness is, yeah, I guess that you you have. Is a little uh, sensor. Start from his answer if you like. I got your question. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So, oh, you want to ask, ask again? Sure. Just okay. so that flows yeah. better. Yeah. So at this point in your career now, you are on twenty four seven, and business is really your life. And you mentioned that personal friends and acquaintances is something that may not be a regular routine for you. So, how do you deal with loneliness? Okay. So loneliness is just part of life, right? So we're all going to feel lonely. Um, I think the best way for me to explain it is is a is a reference or analogy to something that everyone, or I mean, not everyone, but most people have gone through is just heartache or like heartbreak, right? When you, when you break up with someone um, and you, that you love so much and then you break up with them 
how do you deal with the heartbreak? The one thing you can't do, and the one thing that that you should never do is is stop living. Yeah. Right. In any extent of what that means, you should not, you should do the opposite of that. Right. Um, and there's different ways to cope through that. There's different ways to deal with that. Right. So whether you go to therapy, um, whether you like for me. Um, that's something I'm constantly learning as well. Like, how do I deal with things that 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 like that really pull that really like pull at my heart that that um, that affect me, you know, deeply, like loneliness or heartbreak or whatever it might be. Um, how I've dealt with it, which is not the right way, is distraction mm. by staying busy. It's not the therapeutically right way to deal with it because it will come back and haunt you later and it'll hit you when you least expect it in a bigger way which I've learned through therapy and that's another thing too is to be able to talk about these situations talk not just to your friends but talk to someone that's actually been through this a million times and talk to other people that have been been through this uh, you know a bunch of times and that's why it's I think it's really important to talk to a therapist through those very human conditions that we all will deal with because there's plenty of people that are lonely that are in relationships as well. There's plenty of people lonely that, that don't true. have business. And, and they don't know how to deal with it or they don't even know what's wrong with them. But you have to talk it out. And you have to like, most importantly also in this, in this regard, know that we're not alone. Mm. You know, like this is not something that, that only you singularly deal with. But millions of people deal with and the last thing that you have to do, the last thing you should do, like I said, is to stop living. And it's probably the easiest thing sometimes that you can think of. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's just yeah. like you have to cope with it, embrace it, deal with it effectively. And for me, the word effective is very, very important with yeah. my time. Yeah. You know, so um, I, I, I talk to a therapist and I go through my, my own issues. And given time, you, you mentioned that, I mean, obviously, with so many shows that you're doing, there's just not enough time for you to allocate on everything that you want. How do you make time to grow? How do you make time to learn and to constantly develop yourself? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a that's a it's definitely a balancing act that's very difficult. It's like I'm on a tightrope yeah. on a windy day above two buildings, but I'm experienced tightrope walker. Okay, yeah. so I'm, that's how I feel about like you know just trying to stay on the rope and get and feed my brain. I am all about the brain, you know, and I want and I want to get I want to get as much as I can in the brain as possible, mm. um, and I and I obsess over it, but at the end of the day, it's action is the only way to get to feed your brain. You have to really go out and read and 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 put muscle memory to work, yeah. and uh, and and you have to find the time. So I plan things far out ahead, just like I've planned this hour with you. I have hours planned for whether it's piano lessons or whether it's meditation or whether it's like um, things that are important to my life that are that are important for my my growth and my own business and my own creativity mm-hmm. and also outside of that too. And um, I used to read a book a month and now I've, I stopped that. So so one thing I also learned too is is um, habits are everything and routine is everything. So you have to the the difficult part is is picking up a habit. Yeah. Not necessarily like when I say habits, when you say habit, you generally, it means a bad thing, but good, there's good habits. So you can, you just have to do it on a daily basis. And, uh, one thing I've been really, really, uh, not hard on myself, but like really, um, um, consistent is this, this, uh, idea of this concept called Aoki bootcamp mm-hmm. where we, we, I, I have my own team that we're, I'm on the road with and I see them the most. So we have uh, a routine that we do where we have to work out every day. Um, we have a, a certain amount of workouts that we do every day. And if we don't do it, by the end of 12 o'clock at midnight, we have to pay a penalty that goes to, this, to my foundation. Even if you're injured? Yeah, you know, even if I'm injured, I've, I do other workouts, you know, yeah. or if I have to get a doctor's note or something like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's to that point, you know, and it's like a real bet. It's a real, it's a real penalty, and then everyone's paid. Mm. You know, everyone's paid money towards the charity. So it's like once you once that money gets burned from your pocket, you you really do actually do the workouts and you really stay on the habit on the on building the routine, which creates a habit. So it's just like I need to eat. I also need to do a workout. 
So I'll, well, I might even do push-ups right here. Hmm. Or I might even do something, you know, anywhere. Yeah. Uh, right, right at yeah. dinner, I might just like just jack in some push-ups right on the floor, which yeah. I, I've done before. Because I'm like, it's almost 12. We got we to gotta <laughs> knock out this workout, you know. It's yeah. my daily routine fixing, you know. Something that I can consistently do every single day. Hmm. So if I use that same model and apply it to something else, then that's what I need to do to maintain the habits and routines of things to educate myself, yeah. like learning a different language or, you know, whatever it might be. So I know one of your favorite books is A Brief History of Nearly Everything. Yeah. And it's interesting because you are now a, well, you have this passion for future technology and you're a futurist, especially hanging out with guys like Ray Kurzweil and Aurita Grave. Where did that passion start and what got you really into it? All right, so the book that Bill Bryson wrote, um, the way it's written is very scientific. Mm. And uh, when you think about the future, it's like, I, I think about it in that same regard. So um, the book itself is like a precursor of what's to come. You know, like when you, it's like a, uh, you hear what, what's, how, how the world, the big bang theory to, you know, the different epochs of time to, you know, here we are. And then the trajectory of where we're going. And, um, Ray Kurzweil, when you, when you speak about Ray Kurzweil, he, he also, the way he writes is like, okay, this is where we've, we've, um, gone through technology and this is where, my trajectory thinks uh, of, of like the calculations of how things are going and where where we're going, and it's and it's in a li- not in a linear, um, uh, yeah, right. It's an exponential curve of where the technology is moving, mm-hmm. which which will lead us to what is known as this, this or what is coined as a singularity, uh, where the expansion of knowledge and technology and and where we are, we, we just don't we, we can't understand it at this yeah. point. You know, Um, but all these ideas of, of, you know, us turning into, you know, AI robots, you know, um, you know, like like all the science fiction concepts are becoming science fact. Mm. So when you when you boil that down, that's stuff that I was interested in when I was a kid reading comic books. Mm and sci-fi i'm a sci-fi geek for sure yeah, yeah. so for any sci-fi geek we can now see that it, a lot of that, those concepts are going to be real possibly in our lifetime and um, when you do when you read into the science journals and you actually get through all their technical language and you understand what what they're working on and what DARPA was doing, and what you know, all these different things are happening. It's um, it's very real stuff. It's re- it's not like conspiracy theories. It's yeah. not. It's like real stuff that's happening now. So, um, I, I just want to be on the cusp of it. I want to I want to talk to the people that are doing the research. Mm. Uh, I want to be the first to know about this information. So that's why, like I, uh, that's why I named my album Neon Future and and recruited Aubrey de Grey who's doing research on how to end aging, how to like stop cells from, from dying or overpopulating or mutating. And uh, I wanted to interview Ricker as well and talk to him and put him on the album. Yeah. I want to talk to these people that are, that are, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the people that are, are conducting the research and, 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 uh, you know, on the forefront of technology. And now since I'm, you know, a little bit more wiser, just a little bit more wiser in, in the entrepreneurship world. I, I know that I'll be expanding in that world. That's mm. definitely a future for me that I'm going to learn. Cause I, I want to learn by living. That's like the best way for me to learn is by living it and by being in that experience and being around people that are wise in, in the, in those worlds and feeding off that, you know, their knowledge and energy. And, um, I know that's, that's definitely like, innately something that i'm always striving to you know i'm always want to be around that i want to be around the like these the 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 best of the best and learn from them yeah and as i get you know more influential in my world those doors open up those doors open up that i that would have never opened up for me before i would never got you know into a room with richard dawkins and in oxford university and had an interview with him that actually never surfaced Yeah, like we, I did a full interview with him. Flew all the way to Oxford University in in England and I interviewed Richard Dawkins after I read The God Delusion. So it's like, uh, um, you know, it's like 
would he have met with me before that time period of time? I don't think so. So, you know, I, I, I got to take, um, take into account, you know, hopefully that those doors open up and I, and I take up those opportunities and I, and I really embrace those opportunities because they might not happen later on. So I have to just, you know, like, it's just like getting into a school, getting into like a, a school you want to get into. You know, you got to send out the applications. Yeah. You got to do the work and put the applications out. I love that. Yeah. So final question is, we leave the audience with one small actionable challenge that they can do after listening to the podcast and go out there to do. It could be anything that can help them impact more people. It could be to grow and to, to be able to reach their full potential. What is that one small actionable step that they can do after listening to some of the advice that you share and kind of the central focus of the topics that we talked about? I guess what one one thing I think that that um, you know going back to what I was saying earlier, it's you know I always say follow your passion, follow your passion, hundred percent, because that's how we're going to that's where you're going to get the most output of your time. You have to really care about what you're doing. And if you don't, you need to like switch things up and, and move on somewhere else. That's for one. That's, the, that's like the one part. And the second part to that is, is build your pragmatic brain. And, and uh, don't rely on anyone else to build that brain. But you have to build it yourself, whether it's through life experience. And if it's life experience, then you need to hedge your bets accordingly to the proportion of how much you have and not put all your eggs in that basket. So... You gotta like build both sides of this brain, and and uh, and survive. Another thing too is survive because you will fail. That is that is, that is a, a testament to life is is failure, and we will fail no matter what. We will fail, and you know, be able. The most important thing is being able to to get back up on that horse. Yeah, and maybe getting back on that horse is not really what you should be doing. Maybe you should be getting on a different horse. So always know that you will fail, but you got to be sure to, you know, that you will survive the storm after, you know, be prepared for that. Not over-prepared. You know, it's like, I guess it is a balancing act. Yeah. But, yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. Thanks Thank so you. much, man. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.